0: Hey, hey, this is Richie coming at you from the School of Marketing HQ. Before you dive into the show, I just want to tell you about a brand new short 12-week program that we've launched called the Giants Marketing Masterclass. The program gives you access to insights from over 25 CEOs and CMOs from major companies in six areas, customer, brand, commercial, creative, channel, and data strategy. So if you are looking to upskill yourself or your team in just two and a half hours each week, do check out the School of Marketing website for more deets. Alrighty,
1: for now, enjoy the show. Well, hello everybody and welcome back to the show. Uh, Now, Richie and I are super proud to be bringing you our 100th show today. Richie, who'd have thought back in the day that we'd still be going two years on? Uh, But but what a wonderful time we've had. We've had uh, 27 CEOs, 21 CMOs and a long list of OBEs, MBEs, SIRs, Danes. But we can't think of anybody better than Professor Byron Sharp for a 100th show, given his prominence and impact on the marketing profession. Now, clearly, Byron is extremely well-trailed, uh, but today we're going to get a bit more understanding of what makes the man himself tick. So it's with great pleasure to welcome you, Byron. Wow, that's, that was an intro. Oh, and I haven't been finished yet. That was just yes. a, that, a little catch yeah. of breath. Um, <laughs> so, so here we go. Uh, so, Byron, you've had an amazing career bringing evidence and rigor into the world of marketing, which is all too often assigned as the coloring in department within many advertisers and brands. Um, you're a professor of marketing science at the University of South Australia and also director of the Ehrenberg Bass Institute for Marketing Science. And, and that role since 1995. And you run the world's largest institute that studies marketing. Um, and you've been in academia for 31 years. Probably a lot of people didn't know that you did have a stint as a marketing manager. Maybe we'll come into that uh, shortly. Um, but of course, you wrote How Brands Grow in... 2010, and How Brands Grow Too, with Jenny Rumniak, I can never quite say Jenny's name, in 2015. And, and most famously, you have really bust the myth around how loyalty works when it comes to the decisions that people make about brands. Uh, and so you've grown to be rather famous in your own right, uh, but no more no less than one of the very most respected influence, influencers in marketing full stop. So that's the full intro, and again, a great sure.
2: to you on the yeah. Let's just stop there. I mean, that's
0: <laughs> really, but we can't. We can't because we're just getting started. Uh, Professor way. Sharp Byron, uh, an absolute privilege, an absolute real privilege to have you on with us at what is such a seminal moment for us—the hundredth episode. So, so thank you for spending some time. Um, as you were talking to before, you you suggested you're on your travels and you're you're with us in in sunny UK, uh, hmm. uh, kind of. Um, tell us how you're doing. How have you been? And how, how's your travels been so far?
2: Uh, uh, good. I was hoping to get to the European summer, but obviously, because <laughs> it has been a very wet, uh, rainy uh, winter in, in Adela- it, it, it We do get a lot of rain in Australia, in spite of what, we even get snow in Australia. People don't realise this. Uh, but that is not to be, but it is delightful. I'm delighted to be travelling again. The um, Eranbu Bass Institute has been sort of, you know, Held in, in Fortress Australia for, for two years, and now we have, um, gosh, I think there's about four or five of us in London today. I mean, that's quite amazing.
1: Yeah, you you do your global tours in a way, don't you? Coming out to your sponsors to up, bring them up to date on the latest thinking. Uh,
2: yes, we have a number of sponsors who joined. To, you know, kindly joined and sponsored the institute during the pandemic, and and so some people have been sponsors for sort of two years, and never actually seen anyone in their offices, which is you know, <laughs> I think they would tolerate for a while, but it's it's time we turned up on their doorstep,
1: hit, hit the road, and um well, we we've been having. I, I have to say that Direct Line is a is a sponsor, and happily so. We've taken great benefit from that and I think I've joined the dots with you before Byron that I worked for Bruce McColl for a number of years at Mars and oh, right. he, he remains the best boss I ever had and of course he is now a director but some people won't know too much about the Edinburgh Bass Institute so maybe useful just to give us a bit of a lowdown on what, what the Aaron Rose Bass Institute does.
2: Uh, okay we're, we're, well, we're a bit like a medical research institute it's just that we study marketing and um, how we came to be in adelaide as sort of historical accident i think um perhaps i should go into that because i i know that you know you that this this podcast is for people thinking about careers in marketing or starting careers in marketing so um i think i probably have a similar story to probably most of the marketing scientists in the Arnhem Bass Institute. None of them ever expected to be scientists. None of them ever <laughs> expected to be working in academia. I don't think um, it sort of accidentally happened. I, I studied history and art history and things at high school, and, and, um, and then um, confused my teachers by going enrolling in a, a Bachelor of Commerce at Auckland University. Um, I guess I, well, I guess I didn't want to be a history teacher, and. I thought I would study management, but I I found the after after doing really high-level history and things, I thought the management courses were very pseudo-academic, you know, really not what I thought would be taught in a business school. And then there were these marketing classes where they taught you about how to work out what consumers wanted and, you know, the four Ps, you know, and I thought to to a like 17-year-old, this was... uh, that's what I thought business was about, you know, I knew I'd have to study accounting and finance and other stuff, but you know the fundamentals of business seem to be being taught in the marketing classes. So that's how I sort of fell into into marketing. But I never thought I would end up doing research or being an academic. Um, but as you say, I had a as marketing manager of the what was the university's first sort of enterprise hub, strangely, Strangely named TechSearch, very weird name. But anyway, it was the commercialization company of the university. And I did what I think all good marketers, first day of the job, do. They look at the books and see where the sales are coming from. And you know, what products are selling and things. And much to my surprise, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't really the business school. It was um, uh, not surprisingly the pharmacists and people like that, but it was also the chemical technology people, you know, it was the the more hard sciences. And, uh, you know, so I went out and saw their centers and talked to them and things. And I realized what they were doing different from the business school was that they were making new discoveries. And the world really wanted new discoveries. And I thought, well, there's you know, there really is no future in just selling the old stuff, if you like. Um, and that led me to start doing a master's by research and, and convincing a few other people to come and join me and i guess we never wanted to we we felt we were pretty much homegrown we were pretty locked out of the big american journals so we sort of trod our own path which turned out to be very very good i think for the world um so we ended up not just writing esoteric academic articles that Appealed to the fashion in academia at the time. We were all people who wanted to have an impact on the world. So I'm, I'm pleased to say we built a global B two B brand, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, and um, yeah, we're entirely funded entirely funded by the users of research, not not taxpayers or
0: governments. How how incredible! I mean, honestly, you talk about real world impact, Byron, and you know it doesn't it doesn't get Better than what you guys have done. It's tremendous, really tremendous. Um, I love the thought. It's very
2: motivating for our young researchers, I think, because some of them are you know, very bright. They've gone into the undergraduate degree, but they've always been focused on, you know, going out working with industry. And so, I, I don't. I think if we said to them, "Come and come and work in the Irwin Bass Institute," and you'll get to write academic journal articles. Which they do have to do, but I don't think that would be terribly motivating for them. The fact is that they can make discoveries, and that the world cares about, and, and that they can, you know, well, at least until recently, get on a plane and go and talk to people about it. that. That's what motivates people, I, I think. Yeah, as well as the well, joy of discovery.
0: I, I can see that, and and I want to pick up on this term around new discovery because mm. in marketing there almost seems to be. Two sets of uh, of thought, maybe in this respect. On the one hand, there seems like there's some insatiable universal truths that perhaps underpin our our discipline, and then therefore, and then on the on the other hand, there's the sort of constantly changing evolution of perhaps the world of tactics, for lack of a better phrase, in this context. And I'd love to perhaps just unpack a little bit how we then talk about new discovery in marketing in the context of actually the universal truths that exist and, and many that you've uncovered. Uh, would you consider those to be new or perhaps just new that we never thought about in the same way before? How would you?
2: Um, well, it's certainly new knowledge. Um, yes, we're we're interested in um, uh, uh, discoveries that have a long use by date, I think. <laughs> I think Andrew Aaron said, you know that uh, they will hold in 20, 30, 40 years. So we're less interested in doing research of, you know, that, that is using some technology that no one will be talking about in in, in five years' time or something. Um, so we don't have a TikTok research agenda. Uh... It's um, Somebody
1: just said the other day that... Uh strategy is the road that you choose to go down, tactics are the vehicles that you use. And I thought that was quite good. And, you know, so some of the strategic imperatives that you've uncovered, I think, have ubiquitous uh, application and will do for 20, 30, 40 years beyond. In a nutshell, what are the laws of growth?
2: Oh, uh, I'm not sure who coined that phrase, laws of growth, because... (laughs) uh, Certainly used. Um, we use it. Uh in fact, we do analysis responses called laws of growth analysis. Um, but it it um it sort of refers to the scientific laws, which are not, you know, laws, you know, thou shalt do type laws. They're they're repeating patterns. So they um I think it was Victorian scientists who first coined this phrase laws, because I thought they thought, wow, gosh, look at this. Uh Well, Newton's laws—they apply to uh, billiard balls on a billiard table as well as planets swinging around This—I mean—that just seems incredible. That such a huge range of conditions—it's all—it's as if God has written down, you know, the rule, the laws of motion. Um, Except it was Newton. (laughs) Yeah, that was was the idea of sort of God's laws. Um, So there are about a dozen of those, and they come together in a. You know, well, there's only one sort of view of the world that that we can think of at the moment that fits with those different laws, and that is that brands, in the long run, largely compete in terms of mental and physical availability, uh, and that. Uh, yeah you, know, you have no option if uh, you know you can't say i'm I'm going to be a big brand but not go and build those those assets or i'm going to I'm going to just talk to a small part of the market i'm not going you know, it just this contradicts with all the patterns that we see when we look at the difference between big brands and small brands uh, and we still see surprising patterns even for you know, he thinks, well, I mean, we're about to release our report on on tiny brands. And uh, I often use the phrase, the real world is a weird place. In that most scientific discoveries, after you discover them and you reorient your brain, you think, this is, I get, totally, this makes sense. But beforehand, it did not. Beforehand, you were not expecting it. So we would have expected that really small brands, if they deviated from the, the, the marketing science more famous law, the double jeopardy, double jeopardy says small brands for their by small, small market share, their small market share will be made up of far fewer customers than larger brands, and those customers buying less often, a little bit less loyalty. And so, you know, that's the double jeopardy pattern. And we thought if they deviate. Even just a little bit from that double jeopardy pen, it'll be that they have uh, even smaller customer base, but that it's quite loyal, right? You know, you think the you know you tend to think niche brands are small brands, and so you think maybe this is a new brand that is that, it, that, it, that the, the the few people who have discovered it have thought this is excellent, right? You know, I'm going to keep buying this, and if that brand increases its penetration, it will one day be a you know a, a bigger brand, but. At the moment, it's a bit niched it has a sort of niche pattern because the people who've discovered it are, are, are a bit more loyal. That's all we would think. But actually, we find that tiny brands are, actually do deviate a fair amount, something like 30 40% of them are slightly off double jeopardy, but it's around completely the other way. Not They're not niched. For their tiny bit of market share, they have more buyers than you'd expect, and those buyers have even lower repeat rates than you'd expect and you think oh that's (laughs) right okay the real world is a weird place now the the explanation for that is that very small brands don't tend to have overlapping their mental and physical availability don't overlap so much so what happens is they get a lot of particularly because they're physical about they get some accidental sort of sales you know someone noticed them one day and they bought them but they never then got any reinforcing advertising. No one spoke about them. And they forgot that they did it. And they don't come back. Or if you ask them, you know, what was I saw you drinking, um, what was it yesterday? You were drinking some nude, was it kombucha? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, what, what was the brand? Uh, I don't know, it came in a brown, no, no, green, it's a green bottle. I don't know. And this is and these sort of serendipitous sales that small brands get mean they have actually a bigger customer base than you expect, and even 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 less loyalty than Double Jeopardy. So then that makes sense. Now, but we would never have expected that. So um, there is the fun thing about marketing, and that there's lots of stuff isn't known, and. So, you know, and the scientific revolution started. So anyone entering marketing profession now, you know, knows we're sort of know, vastly better than like when I went to university. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so so I'm interested
1: to know what role you think the books have played in terms of the mental and physical availability of Ehrenberg
2: Bass. Oh, huge, yeah. So that was, uh, yes, yes. I mean, I think that's our uh, advertising, isn't it? Um, not that we ever thought that that would be, but but that obviously is, and, and standing up at conferences and doing presentations. But uh, yes, um if anyone wants to set up a university research center, or, or I give this advice to academics and they say, you know, how do you how do you get people how do you get people to support your research? Okay, we'll make some discoveries. A lot of academics <laughs> don't like that. They're like, why, why won't people just give me money first of all, and then I'll go off and discover something. I'm afraid that people like to buy, you know, like to buy certainty. If you've discovered something, then I'll give you some money.
0: So, so Byron, can I, um, can I get this then straight when it comes to the likes of smaller brands, tiny brands, um, Mm. the, the laws surrounding mental and physical availability still absolutely ring true Regardless
2: of brand size yeah. or share. Oh, oh yes, and I don't think that's that controversial, is it? That if you're a really small brand, you've probably got massive mental and physical availability shortcomings. But what the added lesson is is you've got to be very disciplined about managing the overlap, because there's a, you know, there's a real danger you get you get listed on some website. Say you know, like I don't know, Amazon lists you or something, fantastic. But then all the people who go the head don't see you. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's like, oh right, okay. So you get a miserable return on your physical availability—the sort of catching people when they're about to buy if you're not in their heads. So you need to you need to give that overlap. And one of the fortunate things is if you take over as a as a marketing manager for a very big established brand is you've probably got a lot of overlap, just yes. you know, it's sort of statistical. But if you're small, small, you've got to be very, very careful that you don't build mental availability in one place and physical availability in the other. And uh, yikes, don't get much of a return.
0: I, wow, I, that that is really, really interesting. Then. And, I, and I totally see the overlap bit. And I, and I, I love your analogy of the Amazon example there. I just want to pick at that for one second, though, because um, when we come on to search-driven shopping behavior, which is which is fairly typical now, as opposed to, say, discovering. Um,
2: uh, no, no, uh, I'm going to... Go on, yeah. Google will Google hate me for saying this, but no, no in some categories, there's, there's search, and in a lot of categories, there isn't. Uh, I think Jenny romnick has got a great line, something like, the biggest search engine on the planet is between people's ears. <laughs> if people can use their memories they will use them it's it's when they it's when they can't when brands haven't been built that they that they really start searching
0: right but but then how do you then justify i don't know you know you're talking about the role of e-com, e-commerce and in, in in the landscape and um people then you know searching on amazon for generic categories for instance and then of course the algorithm takes over and you get into sponsored posts and then all the sort of non-brand names show up on the top and all of a sudden, sure. you know, how does that's that then like, sort of reconcile?
2: That's, that's not that different from walking into a, you know, department store.
1: So, with, this, and, with the exception again, that
2: people are very good at screening out things. So they type in, I don't know, vacuum cleaner or something. And, um, you know, some brands go up and they go, oh, Mele, I know that one. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> There's Dyson, no, they're, oh, they're they're a bit expensive, but that. But then they just ignore ones that that one. Well, never heard of that one.
1: This, I, I you want to
2: buy back and clean a brand from that you've never heard of before?
1: I, I like the intersection of your work with with Daniel Kahneman's System One, System Two. I mean, this is a lot about neurology and neuroscience and our brains making efficient and effective decisions.
2: Yes. Um, now, or her, or who Simon's. Uh, Nobel Prize winner, I don't know, fifty years ago, who, who coined the term sat- satisficer. The, the humans don't go for. I'm choosing the absolute best. They go. No, I'm choosing. Be nice if I get the best, but I'm not going to put. I'm not going to waste my entire life. You know, there is a story isn't there of Steve Jobs that he's. They didn't have a. His wife. They didn't have a couch for like ten years because Steve <laughs> had very particular views on the perfect couch. <laughs> So they I mean let, literally sat on the floor. Now that's an unusual story, right? Most of us don't do that. We go, hey, look at that couch. Is that is that your ideal? Oh well, it's good enough. Yeah. It's very nice. I'll take nice.
1: Yeah, latest DFS ad campaign from Pablo. Um yeah, fronts into that quite well. We've got one that, that fits you. Um I, I oh. digress. Um so so what where I was getting to was that that. It feels like there's a double jeopardy as relates to Ehrenberg Bass and the standing of marketing in organizations like smart marketing driven organizations become sponsors, get the benefit of the work. But in many organizations, marketing is floundering. And so what's your take on the standing of marketing as a discipline today within the commercial world? Is Do you observe the same variants? Uh
2: well, just to pick up on your, yeah, I do, think, I do think marketers, we sometimes shoot ourselves in the foot through lack of fundamental knowledge. Uh, a classic would be uh, treating, well, you know, wanting to be terribly commercial uh, and, and wanting to prove ourselves to the CFO and CEO, which we can do with our, the work that we do where we catch people when they fall, right, for for, uh, the stuff that we do in-store, stuff that we do on the Amazon website, uh, the paid search, yeah, we can tweak around with those things and we see instantly, like if we turn them on, turn them off, we instantly see what the effect is. And that's fine. And that's very right that we should do that and optimize, you know, so that we don't spend a dollar more than we need to, uh, that we buy the right search terms, uh, that we, you know, By the amount of paid display that we need, but no more, because we're not here to subsidize Google, because they make enough money anyway. Uh, You know, it's absolutely right that we do that. But then when it came to advertising, which is massively different, I mean, advertising doesn't generate sales today, it builds your mental availability. Uh, it keeps the sales that are there. Most of the sales that you get today are because of the work done by you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and, and what you do today is about creating a future for the company. Uh, I keep pointing out to people that Tesla doesn't make very much money. But there's a whole lot of people who are who bet, right? Because they've given it a market capitalization, which is incredible, because they are betting that it has a massive future. Well, that's when you spend a lot of money on advertising for a brand is when you think this brand has an amazing future. It's a forecasting issue. But we didn't do that. We, we go to management and say, you know, we fell for the thing. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll prove that it's it's going to deliver sales next week. And then we struggle to, and and then we look silly. And you know, we should never have done it. We should have said to management, look, the value of this company is built largely on mental and physical availability. And I don't think that's hard to convince a CEO or CFO that's true. And that, and particularly CFO to say this is like you know share prices. this is a, a bet on the future. So here's our forecasting for this brand. Here's our forecasting for this brand. Yeah. And that shows rigor and that's something you can defend. And then the next thing that they they should ask is, okay, 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 got that. that's okay, so you're getting this much money for that brand, you're getting this much money for this one? But how can you prove to me, because I can't measure it in sales effects, how can you prove to me then that you're spending the money wisely? And it's then that we have other metrics about the amount of reach, the amount of um, exposures that actually did turn into exposures, the amount of uh, the the continuity. And, and, you know, we can say that we're improving these things in the same way that people do with the factory, right? No one in the factory says, yeah, if we get to put that new machine in. Uh, yeah, you'll get a five percent increase in sales. <laughs> no, no, the factory says that. They say no, 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 no. Judge us on things like, you know, um, employees not burning their hands, or you know, wastage dropping on the floor, or you know, sensible things to judge the manufacturing line. And it's the same. We should be. We should have been doing that. So, but we didn't. And so, I, I do feel that yes, marketing often shot itself in the foot and then gets obsessively into. You know, there are even consumer goods companies that have taken a fair chunk of their advertising budget, and not. I mean, they're not. I mean, they used to take. You know, a lot of the advertising budget went in store. Okay, but no, they're actually taking some of their advertising budget and spending on on sort of activation advertising, right? And you know, like, but which is catching you know people when they fall, you know, but. But you sell, I don't know, I've got a bottle of hand sanitizer next week. You sell hand sanitizer, okay? You can't catch people when they fall on, like, you know, TikTok. You've got to do this in boots. <laughs> yeah? Otherwise, you do advertising. So, why are you taking your advertising budget to talk about, um, I don't know, a 10% discount or something? That's nuts. But we did, and we thought that was being um, commercial. I'm- Sorry, bit of a rant.
0: <laughs> well, no, no, not, not at all. Um, Baron, I want to change the, the topic a little bit and and come on to. I mean, you've had an illustrious career. You know, one of the the most famous you know, marketers um, certainly in, in in the profession for what you've achieved. But that mustn't have come easy. That must have come with lots of obstacles along the way. And I'd love to just unpack maybe one or two that you thought had a a lasting impact on the way you've decided to play the game thereafter. Anything that springs to mind?
2: Obstacles. Uh, Well, I work in a big university. And so that's always an (laughs) obstacle. (laughs) Anyone who works in a big corporation knows that. Um, So, you know, you're sort of a startup. You know, we're very different. I mean, there's no other research center in the university that gets, you know, 90% of its revenue from overseas and non-government. So, yes, there have been trying times, (laughs) you know, you get these bizarre things where I remember because you occasionally where you have outside like audits, you know, peer review and things. And, you know, the funniest is you get, you know, a group of academics who come in and go, it's amazing. You've achieved something that no other business schools managed to do. That's really fantastic. Pat on the back, pat on that. And then then, then in the second breath, they'll say something like, but why are you really different from other business schools? Maybe you should have more people that are studying these other things. It's being more, being more like the traditional marketing department. Yeah. Just, they don't even notice the disconnect there. You can't, you can't achieve something be different, but then no, no, we've got to be the same. Uh, so these things are trying at times, uh, but uh, we've also had some things I think that are quite fortunate. I mean, by actual fluke, I mean our university's roots were in technology, so uh, it always had a. Um, from the chemists and things like that. They they always had a strong thing of working with industry. Um, So we're now, our our university's tagline is um, Australia's University of Enterprise, Uh, sort of Star Trek, but you know, thing. Um, But because we are the top rated for for working with industry. So uh, that was very fortunate for us, I think. Um, You know, we could have been pushed into writing some really terrible you know, I know, you probably should ask Mike Ritson on top of like why he got out of academia. But I think I think he looks back on some of the articles he wrote when he was an academic, and well, he yeah, I don't think he wants anyone to read them. I don't think he wants to read them. Yeah. and and there, there is a problem if you're uh, in certain business schools, you get you know made to do that, um, and that takes up all your time. It, I mean, it. it I will say, being a I'm more fortunate now that I'm a professor, but being a young academic is pretty ruthless. You have to work, you have to work weekends. You know, it's just, you have to work really hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, since you mentioned uh, Mark Ritson, hmm. uh, the, the marketing world has observed that you seem to have a bit of a frenemy relationship
2: with him. Can you tell right, us? So, what-, well. <laughs> what, you mean that Mark will, will one day say, um, Byron Sharp is, I think he's one of the greatest marketing thinkers of the century or something. And the next day, write another Byron Sharp is wrong article.
1: Yeah, I mean, between <laughs> almost does. the
2: same breath, um, the, the Dark
1: Lord, as he likes to refer to you, okay. and then sings your praises in the next breath. So it's sort of uh, just your, your take on that, uh, the way that you play against each other.
2: I think Mark's. Quite public about this, isn't he? I mean, uh, he's a very good marketer and he um, sort of positions himself against the Ehrenberg Bass brand. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, so I suppose a friend of me. Yeah. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I'm you know I'm a sensitive human being like all of us. None of us like to wake up in the morning and, and see you know the title of the article, Byron Sharp is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but that's I don't that it's actually a compliment, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Um, but yeah, oh, I don't know. I yes, of course I get, you know, I'm I'm a very logical thinker. So I get annoyed when people write a headline like that and then you read the article and go, Well, you're not really saying I'm wrong that uh, you're, no, you're being naughty, you're putting a spotlight on you, but then of course I know that's why you're doing it, and that's actually clever. So That's um,
1: exactly it, and if there's any consolation, he wrote, Gary V is wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> so in relativity... You know, <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> it's <laughs> only a little bit wrong. Yeah, uh, well, years back, uh, when he read How Brands grow, presumably for the first time, um, wrote like half of it's right, <laughs> and I was... Dying to know, well, what's the half that's wrong? And (laughs) sort of but uh, I I guess he would now say, oh, 90% right or something. Yeah. Look, to to absolute credit to Mark, um, because someone gave him flack on probably Twitter or something, when they said something like, No, Mark, you're saying that now, that's not what you said five years ago, you know, like you and and he and he went, Yeah, well, I, you know, I I learn. I changed my mind, uh, and uh, that is not as common as we would all like to think. All of us like to think we're open-minded. I often use this as a, a challenge for um, when we're interviewing new marketing scientists for the industry. I say, it. "So, do you consider yourself an open-minded person?" Everyone says yes, and I say, "Can you name a time where you a, a particular belief about the world? If, you know, not a, not a trivial one, like you know whether you like." tomatoes or something but you know something that you thought was the way the world worked and then you evidence or logic made you realize you were completely wrong and you changed your mind and wow do people struggle <laughs> people who are sure they are open minded uh struggle uh with that so you know full credit to Mark Ritson I, I only last week saw an interview with uh Steve Jobs wife uh Tim Cook the current CEO of Apple and uh Sir Jonathan Ive you know his Amazing uh designer, and they asked, I think they were asked something about what would Steve be doing now, something like that and they all went well it's really hard to say because Steve was you know not someone that would Steve was the sort of person who could be very dogmatic about something have a very strong view about something and then be presented with some evidence and just completely changes my just you know on the spot no oh okay i didn't realize that i'm wrong i thought wow that is uh you know as a scientist that is very heartening it's but it's not that usual is it people tend to cling. in fact psychologists have shown that people cling to their beliefs i think some of the most extreme studies are um you know, sort of in the bible belt of america when when people are told you know they discover that their preacher was actually taking cocaine and spending the parish money on prostitutes or something, instead of losing their faith, become even stronger, more defensive, oh, and uh, you know that's, that's I don't know maybe that's a bit weird too, but it is true that we do tend to cling to beliefs.
0: Yeah, and 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 what a fabulous lithmus test, test question as as it is for anybody to uh, you know to get so what 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 a pull there. Um I want to I ask, Byron, throughout your career, what has the role of mentoring, either as a mentor or as a mentee, played in shaping your success?
2: Well, um, certainly the Eromu Bass Institute sort of runs on because we often think research is quite sort of old medieval but for in a good way, um, it's a very people business and you have to learn, you know, so the, the classic is a master's by research or PhD candidate it has a you know a supervision panel of two or three people and this is very, you know, and they work with them for three years. Uh, you know, I, they're doing other things as well, but it is very hands-on mentoring model and uh, for me, I mean, obviously meeting Andrew Ehrenberg was, uh, you know, I sort of worked with Andrew for 10 years, uh, but there was pretty was fluke of how it came about, uh, but it was very, very important. And Gerald Goodhart too. Um, I'm, in spite of the fact that I have, actually you know written on statistical modeling and things that is not actually you know really I'm re- you know hey you know I'm more of a history logic sort of person. Um and so to 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 be around people who were you know Cambridge qualified you know members of the Royal Statistical Society was incredibly useful to me. Uh, Gerald used to refer to himself as a reformed statistician. <laughs> in that he, you know, a statistician who became a scientist, because there's a, a dangerous statisticians will sort of model anything. <laughs> and mathematicians are even worse. I mean, mathematicians, of course, are often la la land because you know they they live in the non empirical world in their heads. You know, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, I mean, just. I mean, I met these people fairly late in their careers, so they had a lot of wisdom and told a lot of good anecdotes. Um, and they can cut through things, you know, when you saw something like um, Zip's Law, I think you know, and Gerald, Gerald just go, Oh, right, yes, okay, this pops up every 10 years. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's supposedly a law that says uh, I think it's observed with the frequency of words and things, but people use it to mean that the, the biggest brand, the second biggest brand, will have sort of half the share of that one, and then that one have less of that one. And, and there's a, a set thing from first brand, second brand, third brand, fourth brand. People get quite excited by this, saying, "Well, you know, the, the advantages of being number one brand in the category are just enormous." Then, and you know, but, you know, Chief just goes, "Well, let's have a look at some, let's have a look at some panel data, and immediately start looking at some categories." It's like, oh. Uh right, it isn't. Oh. Ah, you know, sometimes you get two brands that are, you know, one's 16% share and the other one's 14%. And then the next brand behind it is seven. Not, ah, right. That's that's not Zip's law, is it? No. It, so it's not really a law. No. Okay. And if Gerald can, yeah, he had that wisdom that he he had for. Ugh. Most of us, that would, would require incredible amounts of reading and thinking, and we, you know, we could spend a year trying to work out and hopefully come to the conclusion that no, it isn't, and he'd he out in three minutes.
1: Mm. So um, we've only got time for a couple more questions. So I, I was going to ask, um, as people think about getting into marketing, getting on in marketing, what, what advice would you give to people to
2: set them on the right path? Apart from read my books, obviously. <laughs> well, I um, I mean, I, I, I'm I'm you know, agree with Mark Ritson on this. it's terribly important to get an education. Um, I, someone, what did they put on social media the other day? Something it was oh no, I can't remember it. <laughs> it was incredibly inane, and oh, it was something about. Oh, it was something about the um, in Patagonia. I think it was, you know, um, which you know, all credit the the owner of Patagonia has put us, you know, has basically donated the com- the company to a trust um, to charity, right? In effect, um, and they were contrasting it to another big, another uh, clothing manufacturer who just I don't know, appointed as their climate spokesman something like, you know, one of the Kardashians or something, and uh, they wrote, you know. They wrote something like this, you know, this purpose is everything. I understand. what do you mean, everything? Because are you implying that consumers are like re, uh, are flooding to Patagonia and rejecting this other brand? Because I've, I've just Googled them and that other brand sells like a hundred times the amount of Patagonia. So, in Patagonia is a tiny, tiny, tiny company. I mean, North Face, Kathmandu, it's just so many others are just so much bigger, there's no, so, you know, like, we, we just get this idea that consumers are just rejecting this brand. And then I clicked on, yeah, well, it was LinkedIn. So I clicked on her profile and she said she was a brand, like thought leader or something, you know, consultant thing, And but had no qualifications, whatever, never, never studied anything in marketing. And I thought, ah, oh, right, okay, well, that explains it, right? This is just someone parroting fashion and things. And so... Uh, but scary that she thought she could do this. Um, so, to young people, I would say, um, you know, be be humble. Realise there is stuff that you need to know about in marketing. Uh, get good mentors. Do some reading. Be be open minded to new ideas, absolutely, but also sceptical and asking for evidence. And so, we all know in marketing we have a magpie problem, don't we? Of uh, oh, look, new shiny, new shiny. This must be right and yeah, that, yes, that doesn't, that, that, that does sometimes relegate us to be the, being the coloring in department where, and, and we're not even given all the crowns. <laughs> you know, because, because, I mean, really, would you trust her with your, that is everything. Yeah, I don't think i trust you to be making marketing decisions in my company. Thank you. Uh, and, Just even saying some of these things, sometimes you can think it's harmless, but I I do think that in people who are in production and finance and others, they hear stuff like this and they think, "Mm, yeah, those marketing people, they can't be trusted. They're the kids still. So, yeah, my advice would be, um, it's not too hard to convince CEOs that marketing is important. That satisfying customers, working out what you, you know—they absolutely get this. But you do have to get their respect that you're good at this. Yep. I, I, yeah. So maybe sometimes the problem is not that um, not that the company's afraid of investing in marketing, but they're just worried that their marketing and their salespeople aren't the ones who should be making the decision. Yeah. Which is, terrible. I mean, you do see this, right? And then you see bad decisions made by CEOs who, because they're not trained in it. it if they it, really trusted their marketing people, they would leave it to the experts. And there are some companies, well, Mark, you work in such a company, where, you can, where the CMO is trusted.
0: It's a it's a fabulous insight, and certainly and the role of education is, is critical. In fact, I... I read um this the stat which said only 13% of, of marketers have actually read your book. Um, oh, yeah. Hugely long, long way to go. Um as yeah, as an industry. Really. Well
2: let's look on the bright side. That means yeah. <laughs> so you get, lots you more
1: know. Book sales lie ahead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we are. Like the Ember yeah, Bass
2: Institute's not gonna, you know, go broke anytime soon. No. But That's um good.
0: I uh, perhaps the last question then, Byron, but, um, you know, with having accomplished s- so much already, I would just love to get a sense of what the years ahead look like for you. And perhaps are there any other stones unturned that you may are looking to, to, to conquer as you go on?
2: Oh, well, there's lots more to discover. But uh, I mean, obviously, I would like the, um, you know the to provide lots of careers for young marketing scientists and for the Aaron Booth Institute to grow, it's very important that the world desperately needs more evidence based marketers. I mean, think there's terrible, terrible shortage, uh, and it does take a long time in the training. So, yes, like that to grow, get more, track more and more people, uh, to the discipline. I'm not sure if it's the I mean, I know, uh, you know Marketing Academy's sort of reason for existence is to, you know, encourage people in this end, but uh, business disciplines are quite down in far as enrollments. Um, I'm not sure if it's, it's partly a pandemic thing. The mental availability of becoming a nurse or a doctor is, uh, is, is higher. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, business isn't attracting the students as much as it used to. Uh, and yet we desperately need well-trained business people. Otherwise there'll be no money f- for the hospitals.
1: Absolutely. There you go. That's a pretty profound place to step out. Uh, Byron, we have run out of time. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Uh, I'll do my best to pull out what I think some of the key headlines are. Um, As is so often the case and as you pointed out it's a happy accident that you've taken the path you've taken. Um, Could have been a history teacher and what might have been lost to the world. Um, I I love the way you talked about the joy of discovery, the the new discoveries, being open-minded, challenging conventional thinking Um, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure that whether it's 20, 30, 40 years or even longer, some of the discoveries you've made will serve marketing well into the future. You've really helped to make make sense of things and make it simple for people to understand the basic mechanics of how people buy stuff. Um, I loved it when you talked about brands being a bet about the future, a bet on the future, um, often it is the case that marketers are very skewed towards short-term performance marketing and I think you give some of the tools that help to to liberate that conversation uh, you've given us a tour de force in the laws of growth and I've loved the examples you've used I didn't expect us or you to be mentioning cocaine and prostitutes in the bible belt of America but that just shows, <laughs> that just shows the color of the examples I suppose but in the end in the end uh, we need to be humble be open-minded be evidence-based uh, and and all will be good from there. So, Baron, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.